Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Please, listener discretion advised on today's episode. There is some graphic material ahead. Serial killer stuff, you know. All right, so let's get to the interview. I'm thrilled to have Skip Hollinsworth as my guest today. He's an award-winning journalist, screenwriter, and executive editor of Texas Monthly Magazine. He's also the author of the critically acclaimed book, The Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer. Thanks for taking some time to chat with me. Absolutely, Eric. I've got to ask you, where did you come across this story? And and why hasn't it been written about in a book before? Well, there's so many historical stories that slip through the cracks. And in Texas especially, which has a lot of big history, the Alamo, the cattle drives, Spindletop, oil, NASA, the Dallas Cowboys, on and on and on and on. And one day I was reading this book about Jack the Ripper because I'm a depraved human being and I love blood and gore. <laughs> and I'm uh, reading this. It's an old historical pamphlet that came out around the time of the killings in Whitechapel in the east in the end of London in the in 1888. And there was this line in this pamphlet that said, Scotland Yard investigators suspect that the killer came from a, quote, small city in Texas, quote, where a series of similar murders had occurred three years earlier. Well, for Texas Monthly Magazine, crime is sort of my wheelhouse, and I like to write crime stories. And I thought, what small city in Texas? What series of similar murders? And it had never, I had never heard of in such a thing. And this was like in 1980, 1998, and, you know, there was nothing to really Google, and there was no index for old newspapers, and I just sort of blindly called the Austin newspaper, or the Austin library, and I said, do you have any files on old serial killers? And they mentioned the series of killings that occurred in 1885 or 1886. And they said, we have a small file on it, but it's just one or two clippings about some women that had been murdered. So I began, I live in Dallas, Texas, and I began to go down to Austin and sit in front of those microfilm machines, which every researcher knows about. Every All technology in libraries has changed, except for microfilm machines. There's still the same old things where you pull out the microfilm, you put it on that serrated steel edge. You have to run it underneath the glass plate. You've got to get it in focus. And back then, you know, you had to use chains to make copies of anything. And often half the time, the copies would come out blurred. 
And I just began to read the Austin American Statesman starting in the year 1884. And I read these stories about how Austin had been this former cow town that was just a population of only 3,500 people after the end of the Civil War. But now in 1884, the population was 16,000, and it was hurtling into the Gilded Age of America from its sepia-toned Old West past. Electric lights were arriving. Party line telephones were arriving. Congress Avenue, which was the main boulevard of the city, was full of horse-drawn carriages, mule-driven streetcars, cowboys on horseback, and teenagers on what were called velocipeds back then, which are now known as bicycles. And uh, stores were opening. A new state university was opening called the University of Texas that already had 392 students, and no one could believe there there were that many students who would want to go to college in Texas. (laughs) There was a new state lunatic asylum that had opened. The mayor, a real estate developer, kept walking up and down the wooden sidewalks of Congress Avenue saying Austin was headed for this golden new age. It was entering this golden new era. And it was completely fascinating to be able by just going through the papers, to watch a city transform itself, in the words of one reporter, change as quickly as the turn of a kaleidoscope. And, you know, I was just building these files of information, printing out one story after another about stores opening that uh, that were offered that sold pianos, uh, hats for women, flush toilets, hardwood carpets, which we know as linoleum floors. A new hotel was opening that was three stories high with flush toilets on the top floors, which had never been seen before in west of the Mississippi. The Driscoll Hotel, for any of you who still come to Austin. And I'm building up all this information, and I'm thinking, this is great, but where are the murders? Where are these murders I'm talking about? And on January 1st, 1885, I could have missed it because it was on page three toward the bottom of the of the page and you know print back in 19th century newspapers back then was ridiculously small there was a story that said blood 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 and a servant woman named Molly Smith a young servant woman who lived in a shack behind a wealthy white family's home a woman who would get up in the morning and change the fires start new fires begin to cook do the washing carry out the bedpans do all the work that's required, but back pain, painstaking, back-breaking work for $12 a week, was found in her backyard, outside of her, dragged outside from her shed, her head split in two with an axe, dagger marks up and down her body, and she was laid out on her back with her arms out like a demented crucifixion scene, or like a work of depraved art that some artists wanted everyone to see. Well... In January 1885, the term serial killer did not exist. There was no concept that some man would want to get out of his house, stalk a woman, murder her, massacre her, mutilate her body, and then leave her to be found while he made his escape. I mean, there had been no such – it's hard for us to imagine this because our libraries are full of serial killer novels. But there had been no such person like that in America, even in fiction at that time. You know, in Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue, the short story, a uh, two women were massacred and were found massacred and mutilated inside a locked hotel room in Paris. But the killer in that case turned out to be an orangutan, not a human being. <laughs> so police who had no criminology, there was no science of criminology. There was no fingerprint evidence. There was no... Um, blood evidence. There was no hair evidence. There was no blood typing. There was nothing. They had basically bloodhounds who would smell around the body and, you know, follow a scent and whoever was at the end of the scent would get arrested. Well, the blood, the police turned the bloodhounds out around Molly Smith's body, but there was too much blood for the bloodhounds. They couldn't smell anything other than her blood because she was laying in a pool of her own blood. So the cops do exactly what cops you think have done for generations, they went out and arrested her ex-boyfriend, a young black male who worked as a bartender in a black saloon, and they said that he had murdered her because he was jealous of the fact that she had broken up with him and was dating someone else. And case closed. 
even though he had a perfect alibi that he that night that he was at a party on the east side of Austin and could not have possibly have gotten over to this other house where Molly Smith worked and lived. So the cops arrested her ex-boyfriend, a man named Lim Brooks, despite no evidence and a perfect alibi, and they threw him in the calaboose, which was then the term used for the city jail, and that was that. It was called a Negro murder. And then a few months later, it happened again. A young servant woman was found outside of her servant quarters in the back of a ha- in the backyard of a prominent white family. Her head split in two, dagger marks up and down her body, and this time, an ice pick had been driven through her ear and pulled out, essentially lobotomizing her. Another ex-boyfriend was arrested, a young black male. Then came a third murder woman was basically this time there was it was a little bit different she was scalped like an indian and uh, dagger marks up and down her body found in her backyard and another black male was arrested so the first woman was molly smith then came eliza shelley and then came irene cross and it was still considered just a as even the most intelligent white men said in the city a negro problem even though this was 25 years after the Civil War, the racism was significant and pervasive even among the upper-class, educated, uh, white Austinites. There was this theory that a lot of people still believed back then that because young black males had not experienced what one writer described as, quote, the civilizing benefit of slavery, then they had not been civilized, and they tended to, in the words of another writer, retrograde to their primordial state. So there was this theory that the killing that the killing of Molly Smith had set off a kind of bloodlust in other young black men to do the same kind of killings to their ex-girlfriends or women they didn't like. And so it started this kind of chain reaction. There was another theory that a union had come to town uh, made up of uh, black men trying to unionize the servant women so they could get higher pay, and any servant woman that didn't join the union was massacred. There was even a third theory that a kind of cloud of killing mania had floated over the black neighborhoods of Austin, driving men to kill women. And this was talked about among the best and brightest of Austin society, standing on the street corner, street corners of Congress Avenue. So there was another killing. After, after Irene Cross, after the third killing, a young mother was, you know, because of many of the black servant women were terrified. They knew something was horribly the matter. They were not being heard. But some, so one new servant woman had moved out of her servant quarters and moved into the kitchen and slept on the floor with her 12-year-old daughter, and this was Rebecca Ramey. Rebecca Ramey and her daughter Mary, the killer came in, sandbagged Rebecca, and knocked her out, and then grabbed Mary and dragged her out into the backyard and into a, a kind of potting plant shed and drove an ear, ice pick through her ear and left her there to die, which she did. And then came even another killing where there were three servant women who were so scared that they slept together in one little tiny servant's quarters with one of the women's boyfriends. And these were tiny little shacks. I mean, they were not bigger than one-car garages. And someone came in, sandbagged or chloroformed three women and the boyfriend, knocked them over the head with a sandbag, and then dragged one of the servant women, a young woman named Gracie Vance, whose boyfriend was Orange Washington, who was sleeping with her, out to the backyard of a neighbor's home and beat her face in with a brick until her face looked like jelly, according to one reporter. It turned out that Orange had been hit so hard, the boyfriend, that he too died, but it was a kind of accidental killing. It was clear that whoever was doing that killing was after one of the young black women and who did this kind of ceremonial massacre of her. Well, there was all kinds of uproar. Private detectives were brought in from Houston. 
they made an arrest of a barefoot black chicken thief named Oliver Townsend because they said if he is able, smart enough to able to sneak into white people's chicken coops and cut off the heads of chicken and get away with it, then he's obviously doing the same thing to the black women of Austin. I mean, just a completely ridiculous notion. Those private detectives got fired. A new city marshal came in who basically did a form of ethnic cleansing. He'd had all the black men who had criminal records rounded up and taken to the edge of the city limit sign and told to leave. Or better yet, he stuck some some of these criminals on a train and sent them unknown to to San Antonio to 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 get them out of Austin. He also got more police officers. He had more private watchmen. He had little watching the white neighborhoods. And for several months, nothing seemed to happen. And people thought they were safe. There was always this slightly lurking fear that maybe these black killers were going to turn their killing attacks on white women, but nothing happened. And on Christmas Eve, everything was totally peaceful. It was a warm, mild evening. There was a smell of cinnamon and wood smoke in the air. People were having parties at the new lunatic asylum. A man dressed up as Santa Claus and sang Christmas carols to the lunatics. That's what they were called back then. Uh, at the Deaf and Dumb Asylum in Austin, children stood up and did a signed Christmas carols as the part of their co- concert. At a pharmacist party, the big pharma, rich pharmacist, he had someone sing Santa Claus is Coming Tonight, which was the new hit song in America. People were cutting down, were buying Christmas trees, which was the tradition then. You bought them on Christmas Eve and decorated them that night. And around midnight, the new city marshal, Marshal James Lucy, was standing at the corner of Congress Avenue and 6th Street, and he heard the sound of of hoofbeats racing up Congress Avenue from the south part of the city, which was where the Colorado River borders the city. And he shouted, Marshal Lucy, come quick. Susan Hancock's been found in her backyard, her head chopped in two. Well, Susan Hancock was a 40-year-old white socialite, mother of two pretty teenage daughters. Lucy races down there. Other cops race down to the house. Uh, they race by a bunch of saloons who begin to hear the hear the hoofbeats and hear about the noise that there's another killing. And a lot of the customers in the saloon had been drinking a brand new beer that had just come in from St. Louis that week called Budweiser for 10 cents a draw. And all these men suddenly descended on the Hancock home, obliterating, staring at her body, obliterating the footprints that might have been around her body. The bloodhounds arrive, and they can't smell anything because they can just smell only blood. And the men are standing there trying not to panic. And then come the sound of more hoofbeats, this time from the northern end of of Congress Avenue. And it was a police officer who raced down to the Hancock home. He said, Marshal Lucy, you have to come with me. Young Eula Phillips has been found in her backyard her head chopped to pieces. But Eula Phillips was the young socialite in Austin, also white, who was married to a young son of the leading architect in the city, Jimmy Phillips, whose father was James Phillips. They lived in the Phillips mansion, which had a big back wing, where they lived with their young infant son. And Eula was found in her backyard her head chopped in two, dagger marks up and down her body. Her nightgown clenched up around her neck. Apparently, he had, the killer had dragged her from uh, her bedroom, holding her with her nightgown. And what was different about this killing was that pieces of kindling had been put on top of each of her breasts and one jammed into her vagina. It would look like, as I said, a demented crucifixion scene. And up Congress Avenue, for about a mile, raced this posse of cops, bloodhounds, the mayor, the district attorney, all the drunks from the saloons who had been drinking Budweiser. They raced up there, and they knew something awful was going on in their city that they couldn't understand. So this is Christmas Eve now, past midnight, and on these newfangled, high-tech party line telephones, the word began to spread. People picked up their telephones and heard the black demons are after the white women. 
some men grabbed their families and put them in the corner of their houses and stood in front of them with a cock shotgun waiting for whoever was out there to come in and get them out there in the darkness. Other men had the bright idea, and there were a lot of them, of throwing their families in a wagon and riding, racing to Congress Avenue and Congress Avenue and 6th Street, where there were some gas lamps that were still flickering. You know, we forget how dark these cities were back in the late 19th century. There were no street lights, porch lamps, nothing. And it was just pitch black except for this one street corner. And at two in the morning or three in the morning, a reporter for a Fort Worth newspaper raced to the Western Union telegram office and sent a telegram back to Fort Worth that said 3,000 Austin residents were huddled together under the gas lamps at 6th in Congress waiting for whatever was out there to come after them. Some were Some of the people there were holding pitchforks, old flintlocks from the Texas Revolution, pistols. Some were holding torches. It was such a cinematic scene that you think could only be invented by, by in the movies. And here it was happening. And needless to say, Christmas was canceled that day. The church services were canceled. Presents were left unopened under the Christmas tree. Christmas dinners were not cooked. There was a giant meeting at the temporary state capitol. The new state capitol was getting built, and just to give you an idea of how big it was, the architects had ordered the new state capitol to be 11 feet taller than the U.S. capitol because the phrase back then, everything must be bigger in Texas, already existed. 700 city leaders, 700 white men met at the new state capitol and tried to come up with answers about what to do. There was still the conviction that black men were behind all this. So one of the ideas was that every white man form a ring around the city hand in hand and walk forward one step at a time until they came across a black man with blood on his clothes. And then they would question him. And if he had no adequate explanation for why he had the blood on his clothes, then he could be lynched, hung up on the grounds of the new state capitol. And that almost passed. But... uh, it was finally voted down, and there were vigilante committees that were agreed to work every neighborhood, men on horseback who had the right to uh, question, interrogate, and perhaps lynch any black man they came across. It was that vicious of a solution. Uh, the mayor, sensing that, the, the, that something else needed to be done, went to the Western Union office and telegrammed the famous Pinkerton Agency in Chicago, the great detective agency, and said, I'll pay you $5,000 to come down here and help me find who the killers are. And they said, we're on our way. Ironically and almost hilariously, the telegram got diverted to it, not to William and Alan Pinkerton's agency, the famous one, but to a man named Matthew Pinkerton, who had started his own detective agency just to take advantage of his last name, who knew nothing about detective work. So... There was this general sense that everything, that the world had changed in Austin, and it had, and in many ways it had changed in the, for the rest of America. This was the first serial killer, documented serial killer, who ritualistically murdered his victims and, and then, after a cooling-off period, did it again. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with factors, scrumptious, ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week. Pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. 
So head to factormeals.com slash Notorious50 and use code Notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code Notorious50 at factormeals.com slash Notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. I'd like to establish a timeline here just so listeners understand how far apart these murders were from each other. So the first murder happened on December 31st, 1884, to Molly Smith. Then Eliza Shelley was next a few months later on May 6th, 1885. Then Irene Cross was killed on the night of May 22nd. The horrible murder of the the little girl, Mary Ramey, and her mom happened on August 30th of 1885. Gracie Vance and Orange Washington were murdered on September 28th uh, of that year. And then there is a lull uh, until Christmas of 1885 when Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips were killed. Basically, one full year after the first murder. Yeah, the killings took place almost exactly in a period of one calendar year, starting on December 31st, 1884, and ending on Christmas Eve, 1885. 
One of the things that struck me while reading your book was just the, the general incompetency of the police department. Was it, was it pure incompetence? They were certainly ill-equipped to deal with a killer of this nature. They were not, they, they were certainly incompetent. In they, they were high school educated roots, essentially. I mean, they were enforcers. They were like bouncers at bars. You know, they just sort of grabbed criminals who had done things and dragged them off to the calaboose. They had to be tough and strong more than smart. But they were ignorant, not necessarily, it wasn't necessarily their fault they were so ignorant. I mean, there was no criminology for them to use, and they just simply had no way of conceiving the idea that one man was behind it. Yeah, there was no precedent for this at all. There was no precedent. Even the smartest young man in town, a young writer named William Sidney Porter, who later moved to New York and changed his name to O. Henry and became the greatest short story writer of the late 19th century, he didn't get it. He wrote a letter to his friend that said Austin was being plagued by servant girl annihilators. But the panic in the after the post-Christmas Eve murders was such that people began to start wondering if maybe it was the act of one man. Now, they immediately latched onto the idea that it was a lunatic who escaped from the lunatic asylum, who had probably been affected by the light of the moon. Back then, there was this theory that if you were under too much moonlight, you could go crazy. The word lunatic comes from Latin luna, moon, and that he turned into a kind of werewolf uh, overnight under the moonlight and did his killings. And then when the sun came up, he was fine again. And there were lots of people who believed that. There were lots of people who believed the kind of Frankenstein from the Mary Shelley novel was on the loose in Austin and hiding underneath the city in the tunnels. There was even a belief that a crazed old Indian who had escaped from the reservation up in Oklahoma had come down to Austin to do one last act of terror. Then a reporter came down from New York City, and he worked for the New York World, which was the newspaper owned by the famous and legendary Joseph Pulitzer, the great newspaper publisher of the late 19th century. Pulitzer had an eye for news, and he had a nose for what people would read, and he realized that people were going to read about this murder mystery going on in Texas. And the reporter wrote a 7,000-word story, almost as long as the obituary for Ulysses Grant earlier that year in the world in which he said that maybe what's happening here is not a lunatic on the loose. It's not a black man. It's not a gang of black men. It's not someone affected by the light of the moon. It's a very smart white man who plots out his murders, plots out his escapes, and is strong enough to carry them off and intelligent enough to avoid detection. And he wrote that there has never been a killer like this before in American society. It was a very prescient story that he wrote. He described the killer as the, quote, intangible nemesis. But another San Antonio reporter who picked up on his story and wrote another piece saying that maybe there was a white man doing all the killings called him the Midnight Assassin. And that's the name that stuck around Austin, that maybe the city was plagued by a Midnight Assassin. And the city leaders the bankers, the politicians, and the leaders of the state government realized that Austin, which was on the verge of this golden new era as the great city of, of Texas and of the Southwest, its reputation about to be destroyed and people were moving out and you know this kind of craziness was going to plague Austin forever. They said, we have got to find the killers. And this is when the case just turns even more bizarre. And, I, you know, I'm going through the newspapers over and over, and I'm thinking, this is amazing, but surely something happens next. And what happens next was they arrested the husbands, of, the white husbands of Susan Hancock, the first white victim on Christmas Eve, and the husband of Eula Phillips, the, the second white victim on Christmas Eve. And they said that these two men hated their wives, beat their wives, were drunkards who beat their wives, and came up coincidentally with the same plan to knock off their wives on Christmas Eve and make it look like the black killers had done it. And both men were arrested and thrown in the calaboose. Well, that set up off an uproar because half the town believed it and half the town thought this is madness. This is crazy.
craziness. No one would ever come up with this kind of solution. Well, then as there's all this chaos and arguments on the streets and debates about whether the two white husbands were copycats, essentially, the fake Pinkertons announced that they had come to the end of their investigation and they had discovered the killer of at least one of the victims. And his name, they said, was William Swain. Well, William Swain is unknown to history, but at the time, he was the most popular politician in Texas. He was the comptroller of the state government. He was this financial genius, and he was big as an old, old wardrobe. He was running for governor for 1886 and was considered a shoe-in because no other candidate could touch him. But then the fake Pinkertons announced that they had received a telegram from a prominent, anonymously, from a prominent Austin citizen that said, Swain had been seen with Eula Phillips on Christmas Eve at a, quote, house of assignation, which was then a phrase used to describe a boarding house where the owner of the boarding house kept a couple of rooms in the back always open for wealthy men to carry on their affairs with with prostitutes or their mistresses. And according to the telegram, Swain on Christmas Eve had met Eula Phillips at the house of assignation. Well, there was now even another uproar that Swain was the killer, that Swain at least was identified with one of the victims. And Swain himself had to hold his own press conference where where he stood up in front of his desk and said to the assembled reporters that he had never had sex with that young woman and that he didn't even know her. But political rumors being political rumors, the rumor stuck, and it turned out that the source of the rumor was the campaign manager for Saul Roth, Swain's opponent, and the campaign manager had basically tarred William Swain by calling him the Midnight Assassin. Saul Roth wins the election. Swain is ruined politically. He moves out of Austin. And it's the first time and certainly maybe the only time in American history when a top politician has been ruined by being tainted with the brush of a political dirty trick that he uh, was a serial killer. It's such a crazy, insane story. You know, you're right. I'm sitting there thinking, it's it's really strange, my reaction, because I was going through the newspapers. I said, there's got to be some way to wrap this up. Surely there's got to be some piece of evidence that indicates who the killer is. And when I came, and there's got to be some relief to this story. There's got to be something funny that happens in this story because it is so dark and so violent and so horrific. And then when I came across this scandal with the fake Pinkertons and William Swain, I just sort of lifted my head from the microfilm machine and went, thank you, God. It was just a perfect kind of comic relief for the third act. Nevertheless, as 1886 continued to go on, there was no answer as to who did it. There was uh, the trials of the two husbands took place. One ended in a mistrial. The other was reversed. On a, the other one was convicted but reversed on appeal. So there was no answer on that. There were rumors that got started about a young doctor who worked at the insane asylum. Right after the Christmas Eve murders, he was institutionalized in his own asylum for mental illness. And he had gone mentally crazy, and then he was moved to even another asylum where he mysteriously died. And there was, you know, my thinking was there was a giant cover-up involving him, that maybe he was the killer, and and there was a cover-up involving him. You know, maybe people came back around to thinking maybe it was the chicken thief, Oliver Townsend, the barefoot black chicken thief. There were just numerous killing suspects bouncing around the city. And it just kept getting more and more disturbing because there was clearly no answer. Can you talk about Nathan Elgin? He appears in your story as a suspect at the Hancock trial. What was his connection to the case? Well, then even another theory was that a young black male named Nathan Elgin, uh, who had four toes on his foot and who had been shot by a sheriff's deputy, after a bar fight in a black saloon right after the Christmas Eve killings, the rumor was that he was the killer because one of the footprints around one of the bodies seemed to show a four-toed foot. 
And so maybe that was Nathan Elgin's, was everybody's thinking. And now that he was dead, the killings had come to a stop. Well, the testimony in the trial showed that it wasn't a four-toed foot. It was just a footprint of a very light impression. So there was no real evidence to tie him to the murders. But see, here's the thing, Eric. Because there's so little evidence, because there's no police reports available, they've all been destroyed, there's no way of telling what was really known. So any suspect that that's likely to have done it can be thrown up on the, on the canvas and his name sticks. Because you can't really rule someone out, there's all sorts of people who possibly could have done the killings. Oh, of course. I mean, there were a lot of suspects. I wanted to go back to one piece of evidence you point out in your book. That, that police reported barefoot tracks around the scenes of the murders. The person who was doing this often seemed to be shoeless, right? Well, he might not have been wearing shoes when he sneaked up on the servant quarters, but he clearly either put them on and ran away after the killings, or he ran toward a horse or a carriage and jumped in and changed his clothes in the carriage and put on shoes or boots. The the footprints are a mystery because there were, there was never enough to, to determine whether it was the same footprint at every at every crime scene because so many of the footprints were obliterated by people walking up to stare at the body in their own boots. What were the the commonalities amongst all of the murders? Would you mind briefly summarizing those for us? Well, the murders seem to have a similarity in the fact that a ha- axe was used. There was knife marks. Some of the victims had the ice pick slammed into their ear and and, and pulled out. But there were also little differences. One of the victims was wrapped in blankets when she was found. Another victim was scalped. Another victim was the face with a brick. So the killers seemed to experiment a little bit with each victim changing his mode just a little, if it was the same killer. I mean, if if there were different killers working, if the original theory among Austin's white leaders was true, that this was a group of black men who were doing it, then that makes sense too. You can't rule it out. I know you've already pointed it out, but it's it's just so odd that the first two victims were killed on the same night and not far apart in location or time of death. And these two husbands both put on trial for killing their wives within minutes of each other. I mean, it was either a a conspiracy or, or just complete hogwash. It was a conspiracy, it was complete hogwash, or because we don't know for sure, it's possible. It's a tiny possibility, but it's possible that these two men did in fact come up with the idea of killing their wives on Christmas Eve and making it look like the black killers had done it. They were the first copycats in American serial killing history. It just sounds ridiculous, of course. But the problem you know, that I've learned, because I do journalism, and there's always cops to interview, there's witnesses to interview, there's medical examiners to interview, there's public records to look at. In this case, there was just... Nothing to rule people out except logic. And uh, the problem with writing a historical book, as I've learned, is not necessarily how much you've got that's the problem, but but what you obsess about are the things you don't know. You know, did William Swain really have this affair with, with Eula Phillips, William Swain the politician? Did he meet her on Christmas Eve? If so, why didn't he kill her if maybe he was being caught by someone saw them together and he knew that she couldn't tell or, you know, there was some reason that he felt he had to kill her so that he would not be revealed as being uh, her paramour and thus lose the election that way. Could there have been some connection between Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips? Maybe Susan Hancock saw something she shouldn't have that night and was murdered for it. Correct. You know, maybe he was on his way to Eula Phillips and was riding by the house of of Susan Hancock's and she saw him. 
Uh, and so he double backed and killed her and then moved on to Eula Phillips. You know, the other mystery is why he picked the women he did. And that's tormented researchers. There's a lot of people that research this case. And they're like the Jack the Ripper researchers who are men who spend, men and women who spend their lives in the London libraries. And, uh, it's like the JFK researchers in Dallas. Just the gaps, the holes, the lack of convincing information is what drives you. And, you know, I was convinced for at least a couple of years researching this book that I was going to figure out who the killer was. I mean, Austin was only fifteen to 17,000 people. Surely someone knew who the killer was who was slipping out of his house at night. There surely had to be some letter, some scrap from a diary, some newspaper article that I no one had ever before seen that would suggest who the killer was. And I, in my narcissistic manner, was convinced I was going to find it and solve this great crime story. But it's this story is our American Jack the River. It's what haunts us is what we don't know and what we will perhaps never know. This was something that was really striking to me while I was reading your book. I mean, there was plenty of panic amongst the white community as these murders were happening. But the black community was even more frightened as African-American women were the ones being targeted for most of the period these these murders were happening. And they weren't sticking around either. They, they were fleeing Austin in, in such great numbers that the whites were afraid that their primary source of, of labor was in jeopardy. Uh, a lot of women left town. Galveston, the city of Galveston, put ads in the Austin paper inviting servant women to come to Galveston where life was better and they could get they could get work and they could stay safe. Even the dusty, horrendous border town of Laredo took out ads in the Austin paper inviting people to move to Laredo, where they, which was crime-free, the streets of Laredo, which was sort of hilarious. There was, you know, old African-American residents were convinced that Austin was being plagued by a kind of evil spirit. These are people who were still superstitious and thought that someone with an evil eye had come to Austin to attack their women and wreak havoc. And, uh, and essentially, they were describing a serial killer. So the Austin killings stopped after Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips. What, what is your theory on not only why they, they stopped in Austin, but what the reason might have been for similar murders suddenly being committed in surrounding Texas towns? After the Christmas Eve killings, there was a killing a few days later, an axe killing of a servant woman in San Antonio, and immediately the black boyfriend was blamed. About a year later, there was a there was a double killing of two young white teenagers who were spending the night together in the North Texas town of Gainesville, several hours horseback ride away from Austin. And uh, they were murdered exactly the way, you know, axed in the head and stabbed with daggers, with knives, exactly in the way that it looked like the Austin killings were done. There was then other killings around America, one in Cleveland, where a woman would be killed with an axe. And immediately the thinking was the midnight assassin was had moved there. And then in 1888, of course, came the theory that the Midnight Assassin had moved to Austin to become Jack the Ripper. It was a theory so well believed that the leading alienist in America, Edward Spitzka, a man with a little pointy beard and a, and a monocle over his glasses, stood in front of the New York Academy of Medicine at Bryant Park in New York City and gave this thunderous speech it was received with a standing ovation that Jack the Ripper had definitely done his training in Texas. Newspapers picked up the story, both in the United States and England. In the United States, everyone said it made sense that he could, that the killer could have gone to London. The London newspapers also pushed the story because it made a lot more sense that an uncouth Texan had come to their beautiful country to do these killings and not one of their own would have done it. So it was all PR. It was all marketing. 
And uh, Austin wanted Austin leaders were thrilled that the that to, for people to believe that Jack the Ripper came from Austin because that meant the Midnight Assassin was no longer in their country but overseas across the pond. So what do you think about this? I mean, it's it's interesting. I did a podcast with a guest who shot down the idea of H. H. Holmes actually being Jack the Ripper. There's so many people who want to believe that Jack the Ripper was an American. Like you said, some British people were then, maybe even now, eager to shift the blame over to us. And and frankly, we've got television shows encouraging this, being produced now, and and Americans seem almost excited to accept the blame. (laughs) I mean, what's going on? Well, that's been a long-term theme among Jack the Ripper researchers and novelists have always had, you know, Jack the Ripper coming from America or Jack the Ripper going to America and doing killings in San Francisco and so on. You know, you can't dismiss it because there's no evidence to prove the negative. At one point, there was a story in the newspapers that a Malaysian man who worked as a cook at an Austin restaurant had left Austin right after the Christmas Eve murders gone to Galveston, jumped on a steamer, and gone to to England where he was going to work as a cook in England. So the theory began that Malaysian Cook had come, had done the killings in Austin and had gone to London and would, had become Jack the Ripper. Scotland Yard was so convinced that it was true or just did not want to ignore the rumor that it rounded up all the Malaysians it could find in London and interrogated them to see if they might be Jack the Ripper. The story of the Malaysian cook went nowhere. Scotland Yard's own ethnic cleansing of the Malaysian cooks just turned into an embarrassment. But it proved the hysteria that was going on, that no one had any idea in Austin or three years later in London how to find a serial killer. And the actual murders are very dissimilar, right? I mean, Jack the Ripper wasn't actually hatcheting people in their skulls or shoving ice picks through their ears. They're very dissimilar, and uh, there was no ice pick, and the the Jack the Ripper killer cut open the abdomens of his victims and took away organs, which did not happen in Austin, nor were there axe attacks on the on the victims in, in London. The axe attacks only occurred in on the victims in Austin. But the fact was that there were so few killings like this, so brutal murders, that the way the alienists explained it, the famous Dr. Spitzka, was that Jack the Ripper had improved his technique from what he did in Austin. He was more brutal in Austin and more careless, and now he was more refined like a surgeon working his victims in London. It's an interesting theory of an escalation, although the example you give about the Malaysian cook, I mean— how he could suddenly have surgical skills is a little goofy. Yeah, yeah. You know, the question of Jack the Ripper is the one of the great international mysteries. <clears throat> well, let me put it this way. Jack the Ripper was on the front page of every newspaper in the world. That story became one of the great murder mysteries of all time and still is to this day. The Midnight Assassin story because it happened in this tiny little Texas city far away from most of the major cities of America, never got media traction the way Jack the Ripper did. Yet both stories are essentially the same mysteries. Out of nowhere, someone began doing these killings of women, these ritualistic mutilations and murders of women, and were able to get away, and by police incompetence or ignorance, we're able to return and do another killing again. You know, I am sure there were other killers who were drifters, who would kill somebody in one town and then move to another town, and because there was no communications between the towns, no one knew that there had been a killing in the first town that looked exactly like the killing in the second town. Uh, but there was very few, if any, killings where the killer stayed in the same city and worked his killings month after month after month. I'm wondering about the Eula Phillips murder, the the last one in Austin. You you mentioned that her body had been treated differently than the others. Wood stacked atop her body, piece of wood in, inserted in her vagina. The Eula Phillips murder is is different than the others in this regard. It's more sexual in nature than the others. 
There's no way of definitely knowing whether the women had been raped, except if you found semen samples inside them. Uh, you could at least know that they had recently had sex. But even then, the autopsies were not refined and they were, they were easy to miss. And we're not sure that the autopsies were even conducted of all the victims. But with the Eula Phillips case, the last victim murdered, there did seem like to be a kind of strange sexual element to it that wasn't like in the other murders where the kindling was put on top of her breast and inside her vagina. What that means, no one has been able to determine, and you can only guess. But clearly the killer was using these murders as some sort of sexual substitute. So this has been really great. Uh, I'll bet there are people listening interested in, in checking this out a little further on their own. Where can they find more about you and The Midnight Assassin and your book? Well, you can get the book at themidnightassassin.com or off of Amazon. And um, there's lots and lots of information in the book that we barely touched in our interesting conversation. And uh, there's a giant bibliography. And there's plenty of There's plenty of room for people to do research on their own. I'm still waiting. For someone to read the book and think, you know, there's a document up in my attic, a letter from my great-grandmother that tells me something about these killings. But the book's now been out for two years, and I'm still waiting for that phone call to come in. But I'm still waiting. I'm still full of hope. So I've got one final question for you. And I, and I know it's a loaded one, since you've already told me you have no idea who did it. But with all the suspects you present, is there one you personally lean towards as the midnight assassin? Well, I lean towards the doctor. My sister, but I just had no absolute evidence that would even suggest he was considered a suspect. But my sister, who's a doctor, said, Skip, you're such a dummy. The killer had to be a doctor because he would only be able to have that kind of pen that could, drive, that could go through someone's ear. And clearly other people that were in the rooms had to be chloroformed, and only a doctor had access to the chloroform. And the fact that this young doctor at the lunatic asylum who treated lunacy all day long gets institutionalized in his own asylum for his own brand of lunacy in this mysterious court hearing that gets him, gets him institutionalized for an indefinite period of time. And then he mysteriously dies within months. So he cannot tell his story or so a story cannot come out about him just seems really suspicious. And I point this out at length in the book. But again, I can't point the finger at him because there's still that one missing piece of evidence that would link him. Fascinating. What, what was that doctor's name again? It's Dr. James Gibbons. He was the assistant superintendent of the state lunatic asylum, and his father ran the his his father-in-law ran the asylum. And so, the, one of my theories was the father-in-law did not want his famous asylum, which was being written about in national publications, to be tainted, the reputation tainted by by the news coming out that his own son-in-law had done these killings because he was trying at the asylum to do all these new kind of techniques to make insane people sane that he had him put away. But that's a big stretch to come up with if you don't have a single bit of documents to prove it. This would, would make a great television series. Well, any producer out there that's listening, give me a call. I'm happy to talk to you. <laughs> well, super. I, I hope you get some calls. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Eric. I enjoyed it. Again, my guest has been Skip Hollinsworth, author of The Midnight Assassin, Panic Scandal, and The Hunt for America's First Serial Killer. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the new Mafia podcast, Highly recommended. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.